Okay. So what do you call yourself? Huh? Como se llama? Antonio Montana. And you? What you call yourself? Where'd you learn to speak the English, Tony? Uh, in a school. And my father, he was uh, from the United States. Yeah, just like you, you know. He was a Yankee. Uh, he used to take me a lot to the movies, you know. I learned. I watched the guys like uh, Huffy Bogart, James Carney. They, they teach me to talk. I like those guys. I always know one day I'm coming here, United States. 
let me explain first of all hello congratulations on the show and i hope it does as well as the other one did and i'm happy to be with you now this is a, a good continuation adam so thank you for asking me uh it looks as if i've written a lot of books what actually happened was covid came along and i didn't leave the house and i have a dog so i stayed here and even though the publishers weren't printing anything i didn't stop writing so i wound up having five books out in the course of a year but of course they'd started three and four years ago i want to make that mm-hmm. for anybody who has term papers do that's how it works um <laughs> the one that seems to be selling he says holding up a copy is called the exorcist legacy 50 years of fear and this is the one that of course commemorates the 50th anniversary of the what people have called the greatest horror movie ever made uh i dispute that it's a horror movie but it doesn't i don't care because the book is selling and and the film is still being celebrated as it's it's recently late director william friedkin then I had written in between when I was waiting for a book to be accepted and before I started on another one, this one, which is a lot of fun. It's called Breaking the Code, Otto Preminger versus Hollywood Centuries. Otto Preminger was, even to his own account, a, a very famous filmmaker who made a number of movies, including Exodus um, and Such Good Friends. And in his earlier years, he'd done Laura and Bunny Lake is Missing. He, he was incredibly prolific. He was also a gentleman until he got near a camera, in which case he was a tyrant. But on his positive side, he was a good progressive, and he was the one who, in 1953, wanted to make a silly little sex comedy called The Moon is Blue, based on a Broadway play that he directed. But the production code, that is Hollywood censors, wouldn't let him use a word in it. The word word was virgin. (laughs) But this was prohibited by the strict Hollywood censorship code that had been established in the 1930s and hadn't changed one whit in all those years. So Otto proceeded to make the movie, released the film without a code seal, that is, without the imprimatur of the, uh, the, the Hayes and the code office, and it was a success. And therein began the crumbling of Hollywood censorship, which, of course, culminated in the 1968 creation of the letter rating system by then-president of the Emotion Picture Association of America, Jack Valenti. So Breaking the Code is my story about how Otto, through four films and lots of lobbying, was able to give us freedom of the screen. And it's paired with a play written by my writing partner, Arnie Reisman, and me, called Code Blue, which is a comedy based on what went on behind the scenes with The Moon is Blue. So they're both available from Applause Books. And I've got to say, they are a lot of fun. I reread the play after years because Arnie and I never could get it produced. And it's still pretty funny. So I'm plugging my own book here, which is shameless. And I'm only <laughs> doing it because that's what I do. And so that's that's recent history. And, and thank you for letting me spiel. Of course. And, we, and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Towering Inferno book, if you've got one of those on your... <laughs> As a matter of fact... <laughs> I'm never far from whatever I'm doing. I, um, this is it? Yeah, this is it. This there is you go. Law Fire. That's my impression of Irwin Allen. This <laughs> sounds good. Fire. The uh, the building of the Towering Inferno. 2024 will be the 50th anniversary of the Towering Inferno, which is considered by many of us the greatest disaster movie ever made. December. Mm-hmm. 1974 was its release and so for the 50th anniversary bear manor media was kind enough to put out this book we put it out in 2023 to try to help it establish itself in the marketplace but we're going to be pushing it down the throats of everything and everybody in 2024 and that's (laughs) now it's your turn to talk thank you well as you should because uh, towering inferno is a favorite of mine i read your book and uh there was some great stuff in there 
And so uh, I would recommend it from a personal standpoint. I will say that. So, uh, well, getting into your latest book, and I want to get the title right. So I'm going to read it here again. Say hello to my little friend, A Century of Scarface. That's the correct title. Just want to make sure I got that right. Um, as we speak here, uh, this is the 40th anniversary of the release of Brian De Palma's Scarface. Uh, it was uh, uh, released, I can't remember, I know it was December 1983. I can't remember the exact date. You may have that in front of you. It was a Christmas uh, movie. So they yeah. released it in the middle of December. It had a couple of different openings in different cities. Yes, yes, yes. That that it did. So anyway, uh, your book not only covers the 1983 Scarface, but it also covers the 1932 Scarface to a certain degree. I know that you uh, give us a little history of that. So if you want to just talk a little bit about the 1932 Scarface first, and then we'll work our way into the remake that everybody knows so fondly. Both Scarfaces tie in with each other, thanks to the linchpin of Al Pacino. In mm -hmm. 1932, Howard Hawks made a version of this dramatic gangster film called Scarface, uh, which, of course, was the nickname that Al Capone was given because of some birth scars that he'd received from a forceps delivery. Well, or maybe not, uh, Howard Hughes was the producer and Ben Hecht was the writer. Now, these are magic names, Ben Hecht was probably involved with more movies in the history of Hollywood than any other writer with him without credit. Not only did he ghostwrite Gone with the Wind, but he wrote films for Hitchcock like Notorious and of course Scarface. It was based on Al Capone, but he never really told anybody that. And there's a story in, in the book about how that happened. But the film was made in 1932. And this is, these are the early days of talkies. And so the mobile camera, the wonderful fluidity that Howard Hawks achieved is just remarkable considering they were pushing around a camera about the size of a Volkswagen bus with all the blimping and all of the silencing. They had Paul Muni star in it as Tony Camanti, who was a bootlegger. And what's interesting here is that bootlegging, of course, was a, a, a grace, if you will, of the prohibition amendment to the United States Constitution. The forces of morality, the same ones who wanted censorship of movies, said that America didn't need to drink. And of course, in banning alcohol at all spirits, they kicked off the greatest crime wave that America has known until Donald Trump took office. <laughs> we're literally first involving only in bootlegging, giving the public what they wanted. But after that, they became involved in prostitution, vice, drugs, and all kinds of things built up on the superstructure that they created by selling beer and, and liquor. Well, that was right for a motion picture because Ben Hecht had realized something when he'd made a silent film for Joseph von Sternberg to direct called Underworld. He won the first Academy Award for a screenplay. What Hecht realized, he could get away from this morality by simply making his film in which everybody was a bad guy. And so you then have some better bad guys and other bad guys. And that's the milieu in which Scarface 1932 is set. It's known for a number of things, particularly whenever anybody is killed, there's always the letter X that appears somewhere, either a shadow into which the body falls, or there's an X on the wall in some shadows, or in the case of their staging of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, we have where seven men were killed, seven X's on a kind of a, a fence, if you will, near the top of the frame. It's unusually, what's the word I'm looking for? Artistic uh, for a Howard Hawks film, but mm -hmm. it still works. And the thing about it is 
You couldn't see it for decades upon decades because when Howard Hughes wanted to re-release his 1932 film after 1934, when the motion picture production code really clamped down, they told him he'd have to cut it. He couldn't do it. And after he went back and forth to Joe Breen, who was head of the code at that time, he said, well, hell with it. And he withdrew it from circulation for decades. In fact, it was impossible to see Scarface except for a couple of bootleg 60 millimeter prints around. And, uh, I'm proud to say I, I just happened to obtain one of those 60 millimeter prints of Scarface when I was teaching at college in the in the 1980s. And uh, the, it, it was a perfect symbol because here we had a bootleg screening of a bootleg film about bootlegging. Shortly <laughs> after Howard Hughes died and the Summa Corporation was able to sell its assets, they sold the rights to Scarface to Universal Pictures, which brings us to Al Pacino, who was going down Sunset Boulevard into a revival theater called the Tiffany Theater sometime around 1981 and decided that he wanted to see Scarface, which was showing. He went in and came out and told everybody he wants to be Paul Muni. He called up his manager, who was then his producer, whose name was Martin Bregman, who had done Carlito's Way and Dog Day Afternoon, among other great films that Patino was involved in. And within about two minutes, I mean, literally two minutes, Bregman had called up Universal, who owned the rights, and they triggered the making of Scarface, which came out in 1983. But that's the only easy part of it. The rest of it is chronicled in the book, Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface, about how it passed through more hands than a Kardashian before it finally got to the street. Yes, that it did. <laughs> and that is, you just uh, said a mouthful there, and there's a lot of symmetry well, there. We, we, we can go now. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I know. Well, well, it, just out of curiosity, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about how, how Oliver Stone got involved, because he was coming off of, first he had done Midnight Express, which got him his uh, first Oscar. Uh, as a screenwriter, not as a this is before his directorial debut that he would do later a couple of years later with The Hand, and The Hand was no well, actually I'm 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 wrong I'm wrong he had done Seizure in 1974 I'm sorry so he had one film under his belt as a director it was not a success he came back as the uh, screenwriter of Midnight uh, Express and then that got him the Oscar so he had some clout then he opted to direct The Hand. And that did not do very well at all. And um, so he was kind of right back to square one by the time he came along to be involved with Scarface. So I'm just kind of curious about his involvement therein. It's a long story, but the short part of it is, first, Oliver was kind enough to speak to me. He's a very gracious man. And we spoke about it, even though it's the film that he's probably least known for when you consider it. But the film had already been started by Brian De Palma and David Rabe, who eventually would work together on... um, uh, sure, I'm just going like um, the, the, the Casualties of War, I believe. Thank you very much. Casualties of War. Uh, <laughs> that didn't work out because they wanted to remake Scarface as a Prohibition era film. It left Brian De Palma and wound up with Sidney Lumet, who said, You know, bootlegging isn't anything. Why don't you update it and you make it about the cocaine trade in Miami, which was perfect. Uh, but then for a lot of things that happened, Lumet and De Palma had a swap of projects, Prince of the City, Scarface. Both of them dropped out, and uh, slowly, Bregman brought the project to Oliver Stone, who, as he says in his wonderful memoir, Waiting for the Light, uh, he had a certain familiarity with cocaine, and so he knew what it was all about, and he went and talked to uh, to drug traffickers. I mean, he could have been killed 
That's yeah. how brave this man. Well, I guess if you survive Vietnam, you can survive Pablo Escobar. But he did all of that. He did the research and dried out, of course, long since dried out, and wrote Scarface, uh, which holds sort of to the Ben Hecht script, but also explores many, many new direct directions. Brian De Palma was brought back aboard and was interested to direct a film that he hadn't written, just as Oliver Stone was interested to write a film that he hadn't directed. And all the uh, all the ducks lined up, so to speak, and, and they made the, this film Scarface. And when it came out, nobody cared. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's that is very very true. And it's a uh, this. I, you know, there's so many films that we could talk about that had a second life via home video or cable or whatever. I would say this is probably the greatest example of a film and its resurgence after failing at the box office. Uh, there's been many other examples, but this is probably the greatest one that I can think of, or or one of them. Uh, and uh, of course. Now you were talking about waiting for the light, the um, the Oliver Stone book. It is funny because there's a, I I, I thought it was interesting when he because I, I read the book too, and he does mention in there that uh, he was amused at Brian De Palma's way of working because he was he called him um, lethargic, I believe is the, his word for him. He said he because he was only getting six to seven setups a day, whereas Oliver Stone later on would do you know fourteen fifteen a, a day. Which I thought, and he said he was amused at how slowly he moved. <laughs> but you've got to understand that Brian De Palma, working closely with his brilliant director of photography, John Alonzo, that's were true. Shots. They were doing sweeping shots, balletic that's shots. That's true. They were designing it so beautifully that it looks well, like he uses the vocabulary of Hitchcock. I, I don't fall into that trap of saying Brian De Palma makes Hitchcock films. But he used the vocabulary, which was established brilliantly by Hitchcock and others, Michael Curtiz and others who, who moved mm -hmm. the camera so that each frame is perfect. And it lets you know exactly the character relationships within the frame. In this case, a Panavision frame. Uh, it's it's yeah. a stunning film to watch. It really is. I mean, I, I didn't mean to give the impression that I thought De Palma was lethargic. Obviously, number one, I wasn't there. And Number two, you know, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't have any inside information, but uh, I was just going by what Oliver Stone said in his book and his observations, uh, which I thought were kind of humorous, uh, if nothing else. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a lot of technical stuff going on and you had to pay dynamic, vigorous attention, I'm sure, uh, when you were in charge of a production like that and it being, because he's well known for storyboarding and having everything planned well in advance. As we know, anybody who's a fan of De Palma as I am, uh, we, I continue to marvel at the, uh, some of the stuff that he did around that time period. That was the, uh, that was probably his golden age when he was really at the peak of his powers, I would say. Uh, now Brian De Palma was coming off of a failure as well, blowout, which is one of my, all-time favorite films in his career, but it no, it's, it's still. Let me tell you a De Palma story. Um, I, I worked with Brian De Palma for a couple of days doing publicity for his 1973 film Sisters. Yes, or 74. And Big fan. Uh, I was I was a Boston publicist working for the theater chain, but I also had strong connections with American International Pictures, for whom he had released uh, uh, Sisters, which is a wonderful film, and it's really the first Brian De Palma film that we think of as mm -hmm. a. Brian Film. So he flew up to Boston and I met him. He's wearing his flak jacket even then. And we did <laughs> press appearances, press luncheons. He, he had brought with him a loose leaf book, which were the storyboards, the artist sketches for his next film, which was to be Phantom of the Fillmore. 
Now, they changed it to Phantom of the Paradise for rights purposes in America, mm-hmm. although in, in Europe, the name was Phantom of the Fillmore, Bill Graham's famous New York concert uh, uh, venue. And none of the press wanted to see it. I mean, they, they, the, the, the damn movie critics were not interested in seeing something about movies from a, a brilliant young director. And as a result, they didn't review Sisters very well. So I had to call Brian after the reviews came out and read the reviews to him. And he said something to me, which is one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard from anybody. And I always kept it in mind when I became a film critic shortly after that. He said, why can't they review the film I made instead of the film they wanted to see? Yeah. That's the case. Brian has gotten a lot of bad press over the years. And he's one of the most open directors, if you look at the books and articles written about him. Mm-hmm. Because for some reason, people have him buttonholed, and that's not the way to do it. He's a brilliant director, a terrific director of women in particular, even though he unfairly, I think, gets criticism for uh, violence against women. Well, if you're making melodramas, who are the victims going to be? That is the vulnerable woman. And he's a great stylist, a great director, funny as hell, but when he's making movies, he's very serious and doesn't really speak to people very much because he knows exactly what he wants to do. And so he's really a, a, a two different kind of people off mm-hmm. the, the set and on the set. And I had the privilege of getting to know him just a little bit off the set. Well, that's wonderful because, uh, yeah, just, just to uh, see him at work, he, even in whatever capacity you were able to see him working is to me, that's that's a that's a blessing, as they say. So, uh, and I'm sure you got to know Ed Pressman a little bit, who produced Sisters, maybe, and uh, and Phantom of the Paradise. I, I'm assuming you maybe had some interaction with him as well. A little bit. I had the pleasure of interviewing him, speaking with him, and seeing how he works. He was. Uh, did you ever have a chance to speak with him? We uh, on my previous show, Movie Geeks United, Jamie had him on. We did a uh, Brian De Palma. Uh, tribute where we did we covered five of his films on five nights in a row basically and they got as many people who had collaborated on they would pick a film get as many people as they could who were involved in it and they did sisters uh, was one of the episodes and ed pressman joined us and uh it had a lot of you know insights and stories oh. therein and uh yeah and so unfortunately he's no longer with us but he was a real uh, trailblazer and uh he's God and was. he also was instrumental in the career of Oliver Stone we can you know if you want to go it all comes back you know it comes together because there he was involved in uh, getting the financing for some of Oliver Stone's films as well that's so, right um, he had a wonderful way of working he had you probably know this you know those those black and white dappled uh, theme books that you go to school with you write your essays in them they have a, a piece of tape on one side and it mm-hmm. opens he would have each film with a separate theme book and he whenever he was talking about a certain film he'd reach for that book and he'd he'd have all the records of that book in that particular he didn't use filing cabinets that were no computers so he used his his book and i I love the way that he used an old-fashioned kind of medium to keep track of a new medium his papers by the way were acquired i think last year by the motion picture academy and they're being cataloged for scholars who want to see at the margaret Herrick library oh that's terrific that's wealth of information Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah, a, a book should be written about him at some point. Uh, hint, 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 hint. But anyway, uh, so <laughs> we'll. Uh, but ba- going back to Scarface, and I'm, I have a tendency with you. It, it's easy to go off topic because we you, you have so much knowledge about different things, and so. Uh, but I will uh, just two things I wanted to cover before we run out of time here. Uh, number one is the uh, controversy over the X rating. That's one thing uh, we can talk a little bit about that because uh, Scarface was pegged with an X rating. 
And uh, that, well, it got it some publicity, I'll say that, but um, I'm not sure if it was a, a positive or or maybe it just didn't, it didn't make a lot of difference in terms of box office, but I'll let you talk a little bit about it. Well, I mean, the X rating was simply there for the violence and the profanity. There's no question about that. It was an operatically violent film. And Brian De Palma kept on cutting it because the classification rating administration said, we're still going to give you an X, an X. And of course, exhibitors didn't want an X because it means they lost a lot of their audience. Newspapers and TV stations and radio stations wouldn't run ads for it. You can't have an X. Today, that would be NC-17 and pretty much the same thing. Uh, so he kept on cutting it and he kept on resubmitting it and it, it didn't work. So finally... Bregman said, well, why don't we just release it the way it is? And Brian De Palma says, well, if we're going to release it the way it is, let's put everything back in there since we're going to get an action. <laughs> so, then they took it to an appeal. You can go to an appeal if you don't like your rating. And, and this is something that blows my mind. They brought in psychologists who said it's important for people under 18 to see Scarface because it will teach them how bad drugs are. Now, you have to understand something. The film later became very, very popular in the hip-hop community, and young people see it on HBO and on cable and on video. It goes into their homes, so the X rating is absolutely useless. But they only take a, a minute to look at the first two-thirds of the film, not the downfall of Al Pacino's character, Tony Montana. So what everybody is celebrating when they talk about Scarface and how wonderful it is and do all the rap songs about it is the ascent of Tony Montana and all the great stuff and all the gold and glitter and bling that he gets. They never talk about the downfall, which is exactly why they got an R rating instead of an X. So in a sense, the ratings board fell for this argument that the censors had put up uh, and they gave it an R, which of course made it accessible and one of the most brilliant and accessible films of all time. It has since gone into profits because it was discovered by people mm -hmm. of color whose aspirations, you might say, were articulated by Tony in the film. Yes, that, this is true. Yeah, it, it has. Uh, it has. Uh, it took it a while, but it finally got there, as they say. Um, yeah, there was a for years. There was a. I think it was an urban legend that there was the uh, the chainsaw sequence was a lot more violent than what's in the film. But I think pretty much what's in the film is as was originally intended. That's just, and I just always like to to. Uh, pop a hole in these uh, the bubbles of these urban myths when they pop up, and so this is a this is one of those that I've always I get kind of irritated when people say, "Yeah, yeah, chainsaw scenes a lot worse than what they did." <laughs> like, well, I don't know, think so. Urban legends about films that nobody sees, so you should right. That. Yes. Uh, am Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Absolutely. Okay, I want you to write down these numbers. Anybody watching should write down these numbers. You ready? Thirty four minutes and fifty eight seconds, and one hour and 22 seconds. For those of you who see the 1932 Scarface, you've got somebody using the F word. Now, <laughs> my hearing was a bit off and I didn't have great reproduction when I played the DVD of it, but a friend of mine who has really good hearing and a really good sound system, there's a character named Vince Barnett who plays a character called uh, Stoop, meaning stupid. Vince Barnett was a small part actor. He looked like Humpty Dumpty. I mean, he had ears that suck out like a taxi cab with the doors open. And he had a side gig of going to parties, uh, being paid by the host to spill food on people and, and oh, get wow. in trouble. Well, he actually says under his breath, fuck off. Both times in a 1932 movie <laughs> and nobody ever caught it. But with good reproduction now, you can hear it. And it's <laughs> amazing to hear that everything is, has, has gone on and nothing has changed. 
Oh, that's amazing. I'll, now you make me want to go back and, uh, and, and look for or listen for that, I guess you would say. It's a good movie. Yeah. You, you won't hurt yourself by watching the original. No, story. no, it is great. It is great. You're right. You're right. Um, so, yeah, we talked about and of course, I, I, I kind of uh, glossed over the fact that Al Pacino's career was in an interesting place, too, because the previous year he had done author, author, his attempt at a comedy, which uh, didn't didn't quite go over as he had intended. I don't think so. He was <laughs> he was kind of in a different place, too, before Scarface came along. <laughs> so I guess they all were. They were all were in some interesting places career wise. And uh, this kind of, you know, put things in a different place uh, for all of them. It's amazing how anything gets done in this town, much Mm -hmm. less anything good. Yeah, it is. It's 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 a small miracle, as they say. So the uh, resurgence in culture, we talk about that. Uh, That was a gradual thing, but uh, the uh, the release on MCA Home Video is a double tape, from what I remember. It was because it's a a three hour. It's two hours fifty eight minutes, I believe. So I think. I think it was a double uh, a, a double VHS tape from what I remember. For highest quality, they would have to go at SP speed. Yeah, that's what they did back in the day. And then, uh, of course, LaserDisc. I had it on LaserDisc because that was the only way you could see it in widescreen for many, many years uh, because the VHS was uh, panned and scanned. And, of course, uh, what we, you, know, you didn't want that, so um, if, if possible. So the only option to see it in widescreen was uh, to get the Laserdisc, which I did. And thankfully, now we have it in 4K. So it's gone through all of the different... Uh, uh... But the other thing I want to talk about, too, that, that's kind of interesting, and this is something that's only been rectified recently, was the score by Giorgio Moroder, which uh, previously it was released... I think there's only was only there were only two tracks from his actual scoring sessions that were issued on the original MCA soundtrack album, when the film came out, but then I think it was two years ago, or no, I think it was last, summer of 2022, I believe, they finally rectified that. You can now get the complete Scarface score taken from the original Session Masters, and it was put out in a limited edition. It may be sold out now. I think there were only several thousand of those that were pressed, but uh, I did get one of those, and it's it's really good, I have to admit. Yeah. I must say I'm not a huge fan of Giorgio Moroder. To me, it sounds like elevator music. <laughs> the action, and that's the important thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of, I mean, there's some really great themes in the uh, that that appear that crop up, the, like the love theme. I think that's well done. It's not, it's a little more melodic than some of the other Giorgio Moroder disco things that he did. Uh, I just, I, I think it works in tandem with the movie. Uh, and um, I know there was a talk, there there was talk uh, about them possibly taking out the Giorgio Moroder score and putting in some new, having some hip hop artists come in and replace the score. And I think De Palma put the, uh, put the kibots on that from what I understand. <laughs> but, but you know, Universal was famous for that. Remember when they took the Bob Seger music? No, no. Um, I'm going to mess up people out of Peter Bogdanovich's movie mask. Yes, 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 yes. The Springsteen. <laughs> They took out the Springsteen and put in Bob Seger because he was an MCA recording artist. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything to uh, sell a soundtrack album. That's that's where they were going with the uh, the hip hop thing because they thought it would be a good opportunity to uh, sell a new soundtrack album with some quote unquote modern artists. Well, that was a problem, you know, when when Laserdiscs first came out. Actually, when video started, a lot of the film companies had not secured the synchronous music rights for. Uh, ancillary versions of the films, so mm-hmm. they had to go back in and negotiate 
with the the uh, composers and the people who held the rights if they were going to put them on on VHS or Laserdisc. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what's holding up some films being issued on Blu-ray. For example, you don't find Steven Spielberg's Sugarland Express. No, or uh... there must be some reason it's not out there. Maybe it's the sync rights to the music. Who knows what it is? But the film companies were saving money in order to to make the budget of the film. And then they found out later that they didn't have the rights when it came time to issue it on home video. Yeah, I think they finally did get around to the Sugarland Express in the uh, Spielberg box set. I don't think it ever got an individual release. So maybe they had just a limited licensing deal where they could put it in the box, but not separately. I don't think it was. But looking for Mr. Goodbar is one of the ones that everybody talks about because there's a uh, that's never been available on anything beyond VHS. So uh, yeah. and they keep hoping that that's going to be rectified at some point. Who knows? It's turned up on TCM many times. Uh, but never, never, never on a high-definition format, even though there is a high-definition master, because that's what they use for the DCM broadcast. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're getting close on time here, so I uh, just wanted to you know, talk about what you think the uh, the legacy of the film is uh, all these years later. At, at 40 years of age, What uh, what is the film's legacy? It still holds up. I mean, it's a, it's a period piece in the best use of that term, because it's of the 19, early 1980s, and it looks like a film made in the early 1980s, but it's done with such intensity, intensity and such bravura that I, I think it works entirely on its own level. Now, of course, I'm 100,000 years old, so I may just be thinking this. <laughs> I don't know what, what kids today see, but I, I do think it's a kind of a timeless movie. And certainly Pacino's and Stephen Bauer's performances are, and Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, everybody who's in the movie just does a remarkable job. And I, I want to say one thing about the book. I was very lucky in making friends with Stephen Bauer, who plays Manny, uh, Al Pacino, mm-hmm. sidekick in the film. And Stephen was kind enough to write the foreword to the book. And we're, in fact, we just were in touch today. So um, uh, it, it, it's wonderful having him aboard, and it really kind of gives a blessing to the whole enterprise. Oh, yeah, because obviously he was there. <laughs> he's a great, funny, funny guy, too. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's a great actor, and he was in several other uh, De Palma things. Uh, what's, I think he's in uh, Raising Cain, I believe, and there may be another one that I'm not thinking of. He has over 200 credits. It's very hard to keep track of him. He's a really good working actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he is. He's he's very good. I always enjoy him in just about anything. that uh, Even lesser, even the films that work, that really don't work. He's good in them. Like a thief of hearts is a good one that comes That's exactly to mind. What I think of all the time. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Okay. So uh, like I said, we're running short on time, but before we go, I always like to give you a chance to talk about anything else you've got coming up. Uh, if you have anything, uh, you know, uh, since you've been so prolific this year, you may just want to take a breather. I don't know, but uh, I'll let you tell us. Next year from a, a new press um, called sticking place books, is coming a, a book that I've just written called The Naughty Bits, and it's communication, letters, if you will, between the censors and various Hollywood producers over more than 50 classic motion pictures about scenes we never got to see because they were cut out by the censors before they ever got shot. So The Naughty Bits will be out on March 24th. I just heard that information from the publisher, and I hope people take a look at it. The Naughty Bits, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and... Toward the end of the year, we're doing a special push on the Towering Inferno book. And I just, an hour ago, as we record this, finished my new book, and I'm sending it off to be proofread, and and, uh, I'm not going to say what it's about, but it's going to be a major book coming out for Father's Day of 2025. Wow. So now I think I'll, 
I'll take a vacation and go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, you've got them, uh, you know, you, you're, you've definitely got the ducks lined up in a row, as it, <laughs> as, as they say. So, yeah, well, uh, thanks for coming on again and chatting about your latest work. And uh, uh, always appreciate the uh, the books that, that you're churning out there. They're always enjoyable. And I always learn something from all of them. And uh, it's it's always just such a pleasure to have you on and to chat. And and uh, we'll look forward to maybe in a couple of months having you back when that uh, the book you just mentioned finally hits, uh, hits those places. You've been a stalwart, a real good friend, and a terrific interviewer for years at this point. And you're so young. <laughs> Keeping in touch with you on Facebook. And I really want to wish you well with this enterprise. And uh, Louis the Wonder Dog wishes you well, too. <laughs> well, thank you, Louis. And thank you, Nat. I really appreciate it. And it's uh, it's good having you on again. And um, uh, again, best with all the uh, the new endeavors.